What's the thing that's vital to keep the global economy flowing? It's the size of a fingernail but costs billions of dollars to produce. Clue, you may well be holding at least a few in your hand right now. If you take your smartphone and open it up, you'll find many different ships inside. Ships running the operating system, ships managing the Bluetooth, the Wi-Fi, the audio, the camera, the connection with the cell network. It's not only devices that you think of as having computing power. Take a new car, for example. That car will, on average, have 1,000 semiconductors. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, they're everywhere in the things we use and are at the heart of the artificial intelligence revolution. So just what are semiconductors and why are they so vital to the global economy? Today, trade-in ships is a fundamental pillar of the international trading system. It's actually so important that China spends as much money each year importing chips as it spends importing oil. This historian has written a book that charts the rise and rise of chips and explains why the vast factories they are made in are so expensive and complex. A new fab will cost 20 or 25 billion dollars, the most expensive factories in human history. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit weft.ch slash podcasts. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with this explainer on the vital importance of chips. We're surrounded by thousands and thousands of chips, most of which we are only vaguely aware of because we never see them. They're buried deep inside of electronic devices. This is Radio Davos. Welcome back to Radio Davos. We're weekly again now after the summer break, and we start the new term with a look at something small but hugely important, both in terms of our everyday lives, but also in the grand scheme of global trade, economics, and geopolitics. Semiconductors make the world go round, and the most cutting-edge versions are necessary to propel the advances in artificial intelligence that everyone's been reading about and listening about. If you're a subscriber to Radio Davos, please do check out our series on artificial intelligence from the last couple of months. Yet the global semiconductor industry is, let's say, complicated. Its early formation and current dynamics are brilliantly detailed in a book called Chip War, written by this week's guest, Chris Miller. He's an associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University in Boston in the USA. Chris Miller spoke with us about his extremely well-timed book and what makes chips so vital and so difficult to manufacture, and why meddling with supply chains for geopolitical reasons could have unintended consequences. Chris Miller spoke to my colleague, John Letzing. Here's John, starting with the basics. For somebody who maybe only has a vague notion of what a semiconductor is, which is probably a lot of people, can you tell us a little bit about what is a chip and what does it do? Well, a chip is a a tiny piece of silicon in most cases, often the size of your fingernail. And on it are carved millions or nowadays often billions of tiny transistors, which are little electric switches that flip on and off. And when they turn a circuit on, they produce a one. When they turn off, they produce a zero. And all of the ones and zeros undergirding all digital computing in your phone or PC or data centers is just millions and billions of these tiny circuits flipping on and off. And so the process of chip making is just the process of carving uh, many of these microscopic circuits into tiny pieces of silicon. You know, I think the average person might also have an idea of maybe a single chip in their phone, for example, whereas that's not the case. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the abundance of these things? Well, today, almost anything with an on-off switch, except for the most simple lights, have at least one and often dozens or in some cases hundreds of semiconductors inside. So certainly if you take your smartphone and open it up, you'll find 
many different ships inside, ships running the operating system, ships managing the Bluetooth, the Wi-Fi, the audio, the camera, the connection with the cell network, specialized ships to uh, optimize the speed at which your phone processes video. There are dozens of semiconductor devices inside of a typical phone. It's not only devices that you think of as having computing power, because today almost every type of device is being connected to the internet and given some sort of basic computing. So your refrigerator, your microwave, your coffee maker, they all have chips in them too. Sometimes quite simple chips, but often increasingly sophisticated chips. And if you take a new car, for example, that car will on average have 1,000 semiconductors inside. Some of them doing things like making the windows move up and down when you press the button, but others much more complex, managing any sort of autonomous driving systems you have, communicating with the cell phone network. And so we're surrounded by thousands and thousands of chips, most of which we are only vaguely aware of because we never see them. They're buried deep inside of electronic devices. You make this really nice comparison in your book about what some countries, maybe a lot of countries, spend on something like oil relative to chips. And I guess in terms of a basic building block for a growing economy, where do chips rank? Well, semiconductors are one of the most widely traded goods internationally. Uh, and that's especially true when you think not only about chips themselves, but about the devices they make possible, phones, PCs, servers. And so today, trade-in chips is uh, a fundamental pillar of the international trading system. It's actually so important that China spends as much money each year importing chips as it spends importing oil, which is sort of an extraordinary fact. We're used to thinking about oil being a strategic commodity, but if you're sitting in Beijing, you're just as worried about the price of semiconductors and your access to them as you are worried about your ability to import oil. As we put more and more chips and more and more devices, it's become uh, increasingly critical for companies to access the chips they need for manufacturing. In the past couple of years, when there was a semiconductor shortage globally, illustrated just how dependent the world's uh, manufacturers had become on access to semiconductors. And so the auto industry is the best example of an industry that across the world faced a deficit of chips that they needed during the pandemic. In the US, Japan, and Europe, auto firms uh, had to let cars sit unfinished because they couldn't acquire just often a handful of semiconductors that they needed uh, for critical features. And the global auto industry was estimated to have uh, lost several hundred billion dollars in lost sales because of shortages of semiconductors. And that illustrates just how important chips have become. I think until recently, auto CEOs didn't really think of their companies as major consumers of semiconductors. They thought their critical components were the engine, the bodies of cars, or even the software systems. But actually, the, the chips today are one of the most critical components for cars. And if you look into the future, actually, cars are another case study of how this is continuing to uh, intensify in its importance. A new car will have a thousand chips inside of it, as I mentioned, but an electric vehicle will have several thousand dollars worth of semiconductor components uh, inside of them because you need chips not only for the usual features like the windows and the autonomous driving, but also to manage electric vehicle powertrains. So as we project forward, we're seeing more and more chips put in more and more types of devices, which means that company executives in industries that seem far from the tech sector are having to spend more and more time thinking about how to get access to the chips that they need. It's fascinating. Despite this growing reliance, you describe a global industry, global supply chains consisting of, I think you refer to them as choke points. I mean, is it fair to say that maybe this industry isn't quite as globalized as some people might imagine? 
Well, it's an interesting paradox. Uh, on the one hand, the industry's consumers are global. Buyers of chips for smartphones or autos are in almost every country. And the industry has only been able to scale the way it has because it has access to this global market. So almost every major chip maker uh, tries and in most cases succeeds to sell to an international market. But the production process is actually shockingly concentrated. For many types of advanced chip making equipment or software or manufacturing processes, there's just a couple of companies in the world capable of undertaking the type of production that you need. And for many critical components, there's actually just one company that has the know-how to do cutting edge production. So you've got a global market, but you've got highly concentrated production. And that does create the types of choke points that you reference. I think the other factor that people uh, often uh, don't fully realize is the diversity of types of chips. And that's great because it means we've got many different types of chips for many different applications, but it also means that you can't very easily swap in one type of chip for another. And so when you think about China importing as much in chips as it does in oil, oil is basically uh, something you can easily swap in and out one barrel for another. There's a bit of variation between the types of crude different countries produce, but not much. But there's huge variation in chips. And so often it's the case that just a single facility uh, can produce the type of chip that you need. And it would take months and huge sums of money to bring up production in a different facility. So if one plant gets knocked offline, it can cause huge issues for industries that are downstream. A big part of the appeal of this book, I think, for people is is the fully fleshed out history that you provide with this cast of characters. And one striking thing, I think, is the way these early players like Fairchild Semiconductor and Texas Instruments, they relied on these things like the Apollo program and nuclear weaponry to grow. Is it fair to say that geostrategic rivalry, uh, in, in this instance, uh, the Cold War rivalry, fueled this industry from the beginning? You know, I, th I think that is fair to say, and, and here too, it's a it's a complex story because on, on the one hand, there's no doubt that the the U.S. government's willingness to spend vast sums of money trying to buy advanced ships for military equipment was a key driver of early growth. Throughout the 1960s, which was the first decade when you could purchase ships, most of them went to either defense or to space uses like NASA. But it's also the case that the industry only scaled because it quickly found out how to take technologies that were developed for defense applications and turn them to a vast civilian market. And so today, around 98% of chips that are produced go to civilian use cases rather than defense use cases. And so the companies and the countries that have succeeded have done so by taking these technologies that are often developed with government help and turning them into mass market products. And ultimately, the mass market is where the money is. And it's the civilian market that has let companies uh, build the capacity, scale their production, and therefore drive down costs in a way that have made chips ubiquitous. Another thing you describe in terms of this sort of Cold War rivalry is the way that the U.S. was able to get ahead, not least because of the way it was able to spread out R&D funding among all of these different allied countries. Uh, in East Asia and elsewhere, whereas the the Soviet Union was sort of doing it all in-house or, or at least trying to. Um, does that speak to the present era in a way and, and this notion that we can just reshore all of this stuff? Well, I think one of the things you, you see from the very earliest days of the chip industry is that no country was doing it alone. So we go back to the early days of Fairchild Semiconductor, one of the earliest startups in the chip industry. Just a couple of years after they were founded, they opened their first assembly facility in Hong Kong. So they were a, a trans-Pacific company from almost 
day one. And I think that's important because the volumes of investment that are needed to make cutting edge facilities have always been large. Uh, and there has been a need from day one to spread out that investment among a large number of customers, um, but also to do so in the places that are the most efficient to drive down costs and make production and R&D investment economically viable. And so what you find is that the chip industry was one of the first industries really to globalize its value chains such that by the 1960s, you already had companies that were doing assembly in one country, R&D in a different country, manufacturing uh, in a third country. And that's been critical to the industry's success. And so as you allude to, now there's uh, pressure from governments to rejig supply chains in a way that makes uh, different governments feel like their uh, supply chains are more resilient to geopolitical conflict. But that's got to be done in a way that takes into account, first off, how complex these supply chains have become. Indeed, they're extraordinarily complex, but also the logic behind them, um, because there are huge efficiencies that have been gained from this internationalization of production. And so if we try to rejig supply chains in the wrong way, uh, you could end up imposing massive costs that aren't just bad for companies, but also slow down the rate of technological progress. So that's a really difficult and complex balance that has got to be struck. So for the average person, they might think, what could be so hard? You, you build a factory and then you start making these things. Um, so maybe can you tell me a little bit about what's involved and, and what is the sort of cost involved? Well, just the, the dollar value alone, I think, speaks to the difficulty. A new fab will cost 20 or $25 billion. So they're the most expensive factories in human history. And the, the scale is, is really hard to comprehend unless you've had a chance to walk around one. I'll just give you one anecdote. Uh, TSMC, the, the world's biggest shipmaker, Taiwanese firm, is building a new facility in Arizona, which I had a chance to visit recently. And they have on site the seventh biggest crane that exists in the world to move around a huge metal beams as they build these uh, vast facilities. So you've got scale at a really extraordinary, um, in a really extraordinary way, but then that massive scale has to be used to produce microscopic scale. And so the transistors on the chips that will be produced inside of this facility will each one be roughly the size of a coronavirus produced by the trillions and trillions and trillions. And so the combination of vast scale plus absolutely uh, microscopic scale is something that you really don't see in any other industry. And that's why there's so much precision involved and there's so few companies that have learned to undertake this type of manufacturing in an economically viable way. You mentioned TSMC. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how it was that so many of the world's chips came to be produced there and, and what the genius is behind their business model? Well, TSMC was founded in 1987 by a businessman named Morris Chang, um, who had actually spent his uh, early career uh, building the chip industry himself while working at Texas Instruments uh, outside of Dallas. He was really present at the creation of the chip industry. Uh, and he had an idea that he was mulling over over the course of the late 70s and early 80s. The cost of chip making was rising year after year. The complexity was growing. And he realized that companies increasingly wouldn't want to have to uh, undertake manufacturing themselves. It was just getting too complex, too costly. And there were economies of scale that meant it was more sensible to have a smaller number of firms spending more time focusing on manufacturing. And so he envisioned uh, sort of doing what Gutenberg did for books in the semiconductor industry. So Gutenberg didn't write any books. He only printed them. Uh, and Morris Chang envisioned a company that wouldn't design any chips, it would only manufacture. And at the time, it was a really radical idea because there were no companies that only designed chips. Everyone both designed and manufactured 
in-house, but he projected these trends of growing costs, of growing complexity into the future, and set up TSMC around the idea of doing zero-chip design, only manufacturing for outside customers. Uh, and the Taiwanese government uh, was very supportive, gave him uh, his initial funding. Uh, and the past 35 years have shown that this business model uh, has been an extraordinary success. Uh, and so he has attracted the world's uh, biggest tech companies from Apple to Google to NVIDIA to produce their chips with his company. Uh, and it's ridden this trend of economies of scale further and further and further. And today it's the world's largest chip maker. And it's also the world's most advanced producer of cutting edge processor chips. Give us a sense, percentage wise, of all the chips being made now, um, what's coming out of TSMC in terms of chips in general and these advanced chips in particular? Well, when it comes to the most advanced chips, the types of chips that are running the processor inside of your smartphone or uh, the chips that NVIDIA uh, uses to train AI algorithms, around 90% are produced by TSMC in just a couple of facilities in Taiwan. So there's just extraordinary concentration. Uh, no one else in the world can do it at that level of precision or with that vast manufacturing capacity. Yeah, and they obviously are making a lot of the chips that are powering artificial intelligence. Um, in terms of AI in particular, can you give me a sense of, of competition within that specific realm and, and how that's impacted the chip industry? Well, it, it really has. And the key trend here is that the amount of data used to train a cutting edge AI system has been doubling once every six to nine months, according to the best research on the subject. And that means that processing power, the ability to make sense of this data, to use it to train your AI system has been a real limiting factor. Uh, and today, NVIDIA uh, has around a 90% market share in the chips that are used to train AI systems. And right now, there's such a shortage of the chips that NVIDIA makes called GPUs, that there's actually uh, venture capital firms that are, are not investing dollars in AI startups. They're just giving them the chips because uh, there's such a, a scramble underway to acquire access to these chips that they're, they're more valuable than, than dollars in, in the AI startup space. And it's important because the, the types of computing that you undertake to train an AI system is different than the types of computing in your phone or in your PC. And so NVIDIA has cornered the market for this type of computing. It's also developed the software applications that go on top. And so with only a couple of exceptions, almost all of the firms that are raising large sums of money to train big AI systems are using NVIDIA's chips uh, for that purpose. There are so many interesting serendipitous turns of event in your book. Um, is NVIDIA's realization at a certain point that these chips that were, were being used largely for video games had amazing applications in AI? Uh, does that qualify? You know, it, it really does. And it surprised the company just as much as it surprised outside observers. It was video games and then in more recent years, cryptocurrency mining that were the two drivers of NVIDIA's growth. And, you know, in some ways, there's a sort of counterintuitive conclusion that actually the key impact of cryptocurrency on the world is probably not going to be in the creation of Bitcoin or Ethereum, but it's going to be in uh, driving NVIDIA's growth over the last decade as the company was investing billions of dollars a year trying to not focus on crypto mining, but actually build the chips and the software applications needed for AI. But certainly it was a, a wild journey for uh, Jensen Huang, the CEO, uh, in the several decades since he founded it. Uh, they would readily admit that they had no idea that AI would be their primary business several decades down the road, because as you say, they were focused on graphics, uh, graphics and computer games 
and video games when they started. Can you give us maybe a high-level view of what it is about an advanced chip that you might need for AI uh, that, that works in a way that's different from other chips? Well, the, the key difference between a, a chip called a CPU, which is the main chip in your phone or your PC, and, and a chip called a GPU, which is the type of chip that you use for AI training, is that CPUs do many different types of things, one after the other, sequentially. Whereas GPUs are good for parallel processing. Uh, they can do multiple parallel things at the same time. Uh, and so when you're training AI systems, that parallel processing provides huge increases in speed. And so if you want to train AI, you can do it on a CPU, but the speed is much slower. The energy intensivity is much higher. And so the cost of AI training just shoots up uh, exponentially. And, and, and that matters because companies are already spending vast sums on AI training. Sam Altman of OpenAI has publicly predicted that he might spend up to $100 billion developing OpenAI's uh, uh, systems, and they'll largely be spent on paying for GPUs. So the, the cost of compute is really enormous. And so there's huge gains to be had from finding the most efficient, efficient chip for a given type of AI workload. Silicon Valley has this global reputation for relentlessly churning out new competitors and disrupting markets and refreshing competition. Um, so is it ironic in any way that pretty much all of these tech companies coming out of there or or really anywhere, have to rely on a small handful of companies in the chip industry? Well, it is something of a paradox, because on the one hand, there's no doubt you've got extraordinary disruptive innovation and startups like NVIDIA um, emerging. And NVIDIA you know, was started by uh, three chip designers who met in a Denny's in a, uh, a rough neighborhood of San Jose in the earliest days. So you know, a real classic startup story, not a garage in Palo Alto, but close. And then you've got uh, next to them firms that have almost monopolized their market and have been in their market position for a decade or longer. I think there are two reasons why you've, you've got these dynamics. One is the capital investment uh, needed uh, in shipmaking is so vast that it's really hard to start up new firms in the manufacturing business. In chip design, it's easier, but in chip manufacturing, you know, good luck raising $20 billion from your uh, family and friends to get your chip manufacturing startup off the ground. So that's, that's one. The second is the amount of complexity involved uh, and getting close to the cutting edge is just far, far larger than in most other industries. The material science knowledge you need in the manufacturing, the chemistry, the physics, there's so many different disciplines that have to be integrated. And unless you're able to get all of them at the same time at the cutting edge, you're not anywhere close. Um, because being second best in this industry is a guarantee that you won't have the customer base. You'll be far from the cutting edge. And so there's huge returns from being the best, which means that it's very, very difficult to be a startup. Um, because you've got huge barriers to entry that you face uh, in your early years. And given the dynamics that you just described, I, I think it's fair to say, and, and you say in the book, that no country really assumes that it can just do it alone. You, you, you describe a definite desire to create a sort of distinct non-U.S. supply chain. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, what do you think about the prospects for that? And is that something that you see potentially realistically happening? Well, I think right now the, the dynamic is that um, you've got a, a clear move by the U.S. and Japan, joined by the Netherlands, to uh, 
uh, limit the transfer of advanced chip making tools to China. And China obviously is uh, not going to accept that without trying to find ways around it. And so Chinese firms, Chinese government are investing uh, quite heavily trying to build up uh, alternatives. But the challenge is that in many of these market segments where you've got just one or two firms capable of producing ultra-precise manufacturing equipment, it's just very, very difficult to replicate. So if you look at some of the tools that are used to make chips, and these are the types of tools that have been restricted in recent uh, months, you know, some of these tools have hundreds of thousands of components, including the flattest mirrors humans have ever made, the most powerful lasers ever deployed in commercial devices. There's just extraordinarily complex, far more complex than spaceships that can go to the moon or uh, almost any type of medical device. And so the idea that new firms are going to enter the market, learn how to produce at this extraordinary level of precision is something that's not going to be done quickly. That's the trend we have right now in the chip industry is an effort to replicate the capabilities of some of these firms. And the question is, how long will it take for competitors, almost certainly from China, to learn to replicate these capabilities? And I think the answer is it's going to take a fair amount of time, just given the complexity involved. And it's, it's not just geopolitical risk that threatens these choke points. I think one really interesting aspect that you raise in the book is, is the threat of natural disaster. There's, there's this corny James Bond movie from the 80s where the villain wants to destroy Silicon Valley with an earthquake. But in fact, as you point out in the book, that's maybe not such a, a far-fetched threat. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what's involved there, what, what that risk is? Well, you know, I, th I think when you zoom out and realize that we've built the chip industry in, in Silicon Valley, in Taiwan, in Japan, a number of highly seismically active zones, uh, in hindsight, it doesn't look all that wise. Even production of the, the lithography tools, one of the types of tools you need to make chipping equipment is done in the Netherlands. It's only, I was recently reminded, uh, 70 feet above sea level where their factory is as well. So it's easy to imagine ways that natural disasters could cause huge disruptions, especially given the concentration that we discussed. Now, the chip industry spends huge sums of money trying to insure itself against these capabilities. So all these facilities have redundant power and uh, all sorts of systems designed to make sure that they've got uh, as much insurance as you can realistically have. Uh, but uh, in the case of a big earthquake located in the wrong region, it's not difficult to imagine uh, the ways natural disasters could cause not just billions, but you know, in the worst case, a trillion dollars of damage. For a lot of people, maybe the only time they became aware of semiconductors was during the pandemic with shortages. Um, but you raise a really interesting argument in the book, which is that, you know, you're saying that it really wasn't as much to do with supply chain hiccups as it was to do with demand growth. So can you maybe tell me a little bit about what, what's behind that? Well, one fact that surprises a lot of people is that semiconductor production globally increased every single year of the pandemic. So we produced far more chips after the pandemic than we did before it. And so there, there were some disruptions when factories were closed due to COVID restrictions. But actually, the chip industry did, I think, a really extraordinary job in making sure that those disruptions were as limited as possible. And in some ways, it makes sense because inside of a chip making facility, you know, it's, it's, it's not just COVID that induced companies to take cleanliness very seriously. You know, a single speck of dust can cause uh, millions of dollars of damage. And so they were already highly environmentally controlled factories that we're talking about. The, the key disruption in the pandemic was a surge of demand that was completely unpredicted demand for new PCs as people started working from home, more data center infrastructures, companies worked to upgrade their communications uh, capabilities. 
And at the same time, many other companies that bought chips predicted early in the pandemic that their sales would collapse. So car companies looked at the pandemic, said this is going to be an economic disaster, cut their production plans, and therefore called up their component suppliers and said, we need fewer components. And it turned out that that prediction was wrong. And actually, thanks to stimulus from governments, uh, consumption kept up in ways that surprised everyone. And so when car companies in particular called up their semiconductor component suppliers halfway through the pandemic and said, actually, we're going to need the chips that we canceled. In many cases, they found themselves at the back of the line because that capacity had already been promised to people who are making PCs or electronic uh, devices. And, and so that just supply chain issue in terms of who was demanding, who was supplying, created a mismatch that caused the hundreds of billions of dollars in lost sales that I mentioned earlier. And, and it illustrated that you don't even need disruptions in supply to cause huge problems for users of chips. All you need is unexpected surges in demand. And so I think it helped sensitize people to, well, well, wait a minute, if, if increasing supply coupled with an even more rapid increase in demand could cause such vast disruptions, what would happen if supply didn't increase, but it decreased due to some sort of disaster? How would my business respond then? And the answer is that most companies didn't and really still don't have good plans in place for how they would react in case the world's supply of chips decreased dramatically for a reason of natural disaster or a geopolitical conflict. Another compelling point that you make near the end of the book is that uh, the demand for computing power isn't going anywhere. Probably it's not going to ever diminish. But as you say, we, we could run out of supply. Well, the, the chip industry has been uh, unique because of Moore's Law, which says that the computing power per chip doubles roughly every two years. And that's been true uh, since the 1960s, when Gordon Moore, who was uh, one of the founders of Intel, first coined the phrase. And that rate of growth is unprecedented in any other segment of the economy in all of human history, full stop, the doubling every two years. I, I, I calculated what it would look like if airplanes flew twice as fast every two years, and we'd be uh, well over the speed of light by now. Um, but the chip industry has delivered that. And it's, it's happened in a way that most people take completely for granted. Now, most of us are, are only vaguely aware that Moore's Law exists and have never really thought about the extraordinary advances that it's made possible. You know, if you look at the cost of computing, it's collapsed uh, over just the course of our lifetimes, to say nothing of the, of the course of the entire chip industry. The first uh, semiconductors that were available for sale in the 1960s had four transistors on them. Today, if you go to the, the store and buy a new smartphone, just the primary chip will have at least 10 billion transistors on it. And so from four to 10 billion has been the rate of progress and the price of a chip hasn't changed much. Um, so the cost per transistor has declined by roughly a billion fold. You know, compare that to the industry. And, and, and Moore's law is actually not a law, it's just a prediction. And that's the problem uh, is that at some point it will become impossible to shrink transistors further, which is the main strategy we've used to put more of them on chips. We're not there yet, but I, I think uh, in a decade's time, there will be a lot of questions asked about uh, can we find new pathways to shrink transistors that will be as economically viable as our prior pathways were. And if not, the cost of computing could begin to increase meaningfully because we've relied on Moore's Law thus far to deliver it, and Moore's Law is not guaranteed to continue. Chris Miller's book is called Chip War. He was speaking to John Letzing, digital editor at the World Economic Forum's Strategic Intelligence Platform, which is a curated mix of expert insights and contextual intelligence on topics ranging from artificial intelligence to water. You can find out more at intelligence.weforum.org. 
Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating and a review. And you can find our whole back catalogue, including that recent mini-series on generative artificial intelligence, on your podcast app or at our website, wef.ch slash podcast, which also has transcripts of all our programmes. And join the conversation about podcasts on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with John Letzing. Editing was by Jerry Johansson. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye.